Friends, good morning. Good morning and welcome to worship at Pleasant Street Christian Reformed Church. My name is Matthew. I'm the senior pastor here. On behalf of all of us, we're so glad that you could be with us today. Whether you are with us in person, in this room, or with us very much uh, online, at home, or on the go, or wherever you happen to be, however you are with us today, we are so glad to be together. Uh, when we worship, uh, as a reminder, because it's, it's new sometimes for some of us, right? When we worship, we use a printed liturgy that has the words and the songs that we're going to say, and those same things are also on the screens so that you can follow along there, or they'll be reflected on your screen at home as well. Um, today is a very special Sunday for a couple of reasons, and so I want to invite my friend Kate up to tell us a little bit about why. Hey, Kate. Good morning. Welcome to Family Sunday. We get to worship all together. Um, I was reading a blog from Sarah Dahl, a woman who loves to teach children about faith, and she was talking about bringing children and adults all together as an intergenerational worship community. To do that, we actually need to have children in our midst while we worship. This is what we're doing when there's a fifth Sunday in the month. Jesus is at work in adults and children. Children are valuable to the Lord and our, our brothers and sisters. We are children of God. Today, I invite you to embrace any whispers and wiggles you may experience during the service. Thanks, Kate. And so because it's Family Sunday, one of the things we do when the family gets together is we get to remind each other about what's going on, how our day was going, the things that you do at home as well. And one of the ways we've been doing that is through Ministry Spotlight, where we remember together about some of the different ministries that we do as a congregation. And today, we get to talk about a very special and important one that we don't get to hear a lot about the work of our elders and deacons. And so I want to invite two more of my friends, uh, Dawn and Phil, up, and they're going to join us for a second as we talk about what that work has been like, like for them. Got microphones all over the place today. Hey, Dawn. Hey, Phil. Take a seat, guys. So one of the things... Um, we're running out of room. Look at that. <laughs> so one of the things um, that I have loved is getting to know the both of you and the work that you do as deacon and as elder. I'm curious to know for you guys, though, when, when you were nominated, uh, what, what was that like for you? What was your first thought? What helped you make the decision about saying yes? Uh, so can everybody hear me okay? All right. Uh, so I got nominated the time before this time, and I made the, the decision that I was too busy, mm -hmm. and so I declined the nomination to be on another committee in the church, and I regretted that decision afterwards. Mm -hmm. I really felt that God was calling me to do that, and I should have done it, mm -hmm. and so I told myself the next time I get nominated, I'm just going for it, no matter what is going on in my life, and that's what I did, <laughs> and it, it has definitely yeah. blessed me. That's wonderful. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, how about for you, Don? So much like Phil, um, I also was nominated the time before last time. Um, and I'm not sure that it was because I was, felt so busy. You all, we always feel busy. But I guess I also felt not qualified, too. Mm -hmm. I doubted myself and wasn't really sure and said, no, I, I really don't think that's me. And when I was nominated again last year, the same thoughts came through my head. And I really 
I thought about it, and I wish Pastor Matthew and I have talked about this a little bit. There are really times, and I'm sure you've all had them too, that I wish God would like send airmail or something to tell you this is what you yeah. are supposed to do. Yeah. And I can't say that I had that, but there was this feeling, this nudging inside of me that yes, this was where he was calling me. Mm -hmm. Yes, this was the time. And I needed to say yes. Yeah. And I too am thankful that I did. Um, I'm learning a lot, but so far it's been a, a great experience. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you, guys. And uh, one other question, I guess, is what is something that you have found that you really like about being a deacon and an elder? So that's, it's interesting the way God works because I like to help people. I like to do stuff with my hands, and that's what I envisioned myself doing when I became a deacon. And the thing that I was worried about was the fact that I'm hesitant around new people. I'm a little bit shy. Um, and that's the part that I've enjoyed the most is getting to know more people in the church and having, you know, sitting down with my, my elder and with people in my pastor group and visiting with them. Yeah. So that's, that's been a blessing and uh, that's wonderful. It's been great. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Don. And I would say, I'm glad I'm going after you, Phil, because I can just, <laughs> whatever he said. Um, but for me, too, it's been the opportunity to get to know more people. Um, I certainly haven't reached out to all the people that I should, but, you know, working towards that. And then also seeing some of what it takes to be Pleasant Street Church, mm. what happens behind the scenes that people don't see. Um, and just some of the thoughts and, and learning from the other members, elders and deacons, just mm -hmm. I think it, it is helping me to grow in my faith. Yeah. Well, I can testify that I have grown in my faith just spending time with the both of you and seeing how God works through you. So on behalf of all of us, thank you for saying yes. If we, if some of us are discerning whether or not we're going to accept that nomination. If we have questions, are you people we can come to and talk to about that? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Let's thank them. That's awesome. Thank you, guys. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, it's Family Sunday, for, and one other very exciting thing today, and that is that it's Reformation Sunday. And Reformation Sunday is when we remember an important part of our family history about some things that our ancestors a long time ago remembered and rediscovered about the Bible. And because it's Family Sunday, we're trying to figure out how could we talk about that? And so, uh, how could we remember that? I mean, here's a very simple way. I wonder if you would try it with me. Go ahead and put your hand over your chest. And remember, the heart, right? In, in many ways, what the Reformation was about was getting to the heart, right? And in our lives, we do this many times. So throughout our service today, pay attention because sometimes we're going to be doing this, and I'll tell you more about that. Like, for instance, when we come into God's house, what we remember is that God is inviting us to come over and spend the day with him. Do you ever get surprised about an invitation? What do you do? <gasps> right? Let's do that. Ready? <gasps> oh, my goodness. God invited you to be at his house today. Would you rise and let's worship together? People, People of God, God who, who do, do you trust, trust to help you? Our help comes from God, who gave us his son. And the son of God is better than everything else. The Son is the exact likeness of God, who can't be seen. 
The sun is the first, and he is over all creation. The son of God is better than Everything was created in Jesus. Everything that can be seen and everything that can't be seen. He created kings, powers, rulers, and authorities. The Son of God is better than everything else. Everything, everything holds together, together in Jesus. Jesus, even the church, which is his body. He is the beginning. He is, he is the, the first, first to be raised, raised from, from the, the dead. dead. Now he is far above everything. Everything will be put back together right in Jesus. That's because of what Christ he has, has done. Has done. Has done. God made peace through Christ's blood. By his death on the cross. Say that you're my God. 
worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. Great is our God, so we should worship to church, God invites us into his house, and we are so glad to be here. But being here, we also remember that we have not done the things that God wants us to do, and we're not sure what to do with it. Sometimes it's very hard to remember and to think about when we do the wrong thing. We'd rather move on. We'd rather not talk about it. We'd rather pretend that it was someone else's fault. So one of the things that God does when we come to his house is he reminds us of how he wants us to live. And part of that means 
that he has to cut us to the heart. Do you ever have a moment where you realize that you have taken a toy from your sibling, and when you see their face, when you see their sadness, it makes you feel really yucky inside. It makes your heart feel heavy, and you almost want to touch it, clutch it. God does that for us, not to hurt us, but because that is the way for us to grow and to change. And so when we come together, we confess our sin. God reminds us, he cuts us to the heart, but then he says, if you will give that to me, I will heal it and I will give you a new heart, a new way to live, a new way to live with our families and to go to school and to go to work and to church. And so friends, let's pray together. Lord, you showed us true humility by becoming one of us. Yet too often, we practice pride. You cried along your friends and for the city of Jerusalem. You loved those who were weak, despised, or cast out. You freely forgave and healed. You pray that we who believe in you should be united with each other and you. You were mocked, whipped, and killed for us. You call us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Spend some time in silent confession. Friends, hear these words of assurance based on Ephesians chapter 2. Even then it was by grace that you were saved, and God still showers us in the riches of his grace, so our lives might display the kindness of God in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace. Friends, this is God's happy and best news for us. The more we look at Jesus, the more we remember God loves us. The more we look at Jesus, the more we start to look like him too. Friends, let's stand and sing. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. Lost without hope with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. When death was arrested and my life began. Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains. My orphan heart was given a my morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance 
when death was arrested, my life began. Oh, your grace so free washes over me. You have made me new, now life begins with you. It's your endless love pouring down on us. You have made us new, now life begins with you. Release my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My chain was a ransom he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt. Darkness rejoiced, till heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. Oh, your grace so free washes You may have to look up or way down for this part of the service each week because the Lord extends his peace to all of us. So I invite you to extend peace to each other. The peace of Christ be with you.
Children of God, peace to you, and peace also to those of you joining us at home as well. Ready? That's right. So when we come into God's house to worship, he cleans our hearts, he tells us that he will change us, and if that is true, then we know that we can trust God with the deepest and most important things in our life. And so, it's right, it's only fitting that after having our hearts renewed, we should turn and we should talk to God because we know we can trust him. And we get to do that together as a church every Sunday through our congregational prayer. But today in particular, not only is it Reformation Sunday, but tomorrow, some of our brothers and sisters across the parking lot and in other parts of the world will be celebrating All Saints Day or Communion of the Saints Day. And on that day, we remember that no matter how many people are in this room, there are so many more people who are part of this family. People who are worshiping in other churches, in other languages, but also people who worshiped God a long time ago. Friends, we are part of a very big family. And on All Saints Sunday, we get to tell God about some of the people who we remember who are close to our hearts. In particular today, I want to highlight for you a couple of those people who I won't mention in our prayer, but we can be praying for. The first is Leo and his family after his mom passed away. Also, there's an, a note um, from Phil about his brother Josh, who had a tree fall on his house, and they don't have a place to live right now. Finally, we should remember all of those people who help keep the water running and the power running when we have bad storms like we've had, especially those people who really need electricity. And we want to think about Mark, too, our brother, who's back in the hospital with complications from sickness. And finally, we have some good news about Henny, who has had some success with cancer treatment and who is now going to take a little rest before they go after some more cancer treatment later. Let's pray together. Dear God, when it's time to say thank you and to ask for help, we pray to you because you love us and you always keep your promises. Today, we are happy to be together. We are here in this church because you made room for us to be part of your family. Sometimes when we come to church, we worry that we might not have a seat anymore because we've spilled our water cup too many times or we've forgotten to take off our shoes again and made a mess or we haven't really wanted to share our crowns or our books or our time with other people. And so please remind us, loving God, that when you look at us, you see our mistakes and our messes and our disobedience, but you also see Jesus. Remind us that we never got a seat at your table because we did enough good things anyway, or because we avoided enough bad things, but because you gave us a seat. Help us to believe more and more every day that we really are part of your family because Jesus made it so. This is what the grown-ups call faith. And because of Jesus' great and very good work in loving us, you call us saints. Lord, we want to thank you for the people who have helped us to know Jesus, to know what it means to love you, to be saints. We thank you for the very first Christians people who followed you around and listened to your words and watched when you healed people and when you died for us. 
They wrote it down and they talked about it with their friends and family and now we get to learn about it too. Thank you for choosing those men and women. You did not pick the smart people or the fast people or the most important people or the rich people. You picked two brothers and two sisters and a woman who was very lonely and fishermen and people who lived in small towns. You picked people who had jobs that nobody else wanted and whom nobody else liked. And that is such happy news because it reminds us that we are just the kind of people you picked to. Thank you for many writers and teachers who have taught us about Jesus, Irenaeus and Chrysostom and Augustine and Aquinas, St. Teresa of Avila and Julian of Norwich, Martin Luther and John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Sojourner Truth, Martin Luther King Jr. and Billy Graham. So many people who have taught us about you. So many people like a great big cloud or crowd of people cheering for Jesus and for us. Lord, thank you for the people who have helped us to know Jesus, to be saints. Some of those people are with us right now. Thank you for our catechism and cadets and gems and Kid Street and Echo teachers. Thank you for our school teachers. Some of those people live far away. And so we thank you for cousins and for aunts and for uncles and for grandparents who have taught us about you. And some of those people, part of our family, are not here with us anymore. They are with you. You know how much we love them, and you know how much we miss them. Jim, Grace, Janet, Al, Ryan, and little Grace Kathy. We will never forget their names. And there are other people whom we love and miss too, and we know their names. And you know their names. And we whisper them all to you in our hearts now. Lord, help us to trust that you remember them all, that you hold them all now until we get to see them again. Lord, when it's time to say thank you and to ask for help, we pray to you because you love us and you always keep your promises. So for giving us all these friends and teachers and mentors and brothers and sisters in your great big family, we say thank you. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, who is our good older brother, we say amen. Today's scripture comes from Jonah 3, verse 10 through 4, 4. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Oh, sorry, almost missed it. One more time. Ready? So having had a chance to share our heart 
with God, God also now speaks to our hearts to tell us about the things that he loves and that are important to him. Let's pray together. Dear God, you love us and you always keep your promises. Those promises are in this special book, the Bible. But it is very big and it is very old. We want to know what these big old words mean for our lives today. Today you gave us a story about Jonah. Would you come to us by your Holy Spirit? Come close like mom or dad reading us a book. And please tell our hearts about Jonah so we can understand your word. Amen. At our 125th anniversary celebration a few weeks ago, I showed you a bridge. This bridge. It's in Honduras, and it's called the Choloteca Bridge. And it was designed to withstand the forces of the weather in most extreme. Shortly after they finished building it, a Category 5 hurricane made landfall in Honduras, and every other bridge was damaged or destroyed except for this one. In fact, the Choluteca Bridge not only survived, but it was in nearly perfect condition after the storm. Except there was one problem, maybe you noticed it in the picture. The storm could not move the bridge, but the storm did move the river. Impressively, the storm took a several hundred foot wide river and carved a new channel for it around the bridge. This meant that the bridge survived, but it lost its purpose. It became a bridge to nowhere. And part of the reason that we are reading Jonah together this fall is because the book of, in the book of Jonah, God extends his grace and mercy to those who are lost, who are enemies, and we are meant to be a bridge to something good, too. But if we are going to be a bridge, God is going to have to deal with something very hidden. He's going to have to deal with our self-righteousness, which is exactly what God does in chapter 4 in the story of Jonah today as it comes to its climax. Jonah does go to Nineveh. Jonah does extend God's message to this city full of violence, injustice, and evil, and Nineveh does make a change. Have you ever seen those home renovation shows on TV? You know that everyone endures all of the conversation and the decision-making about what they're going to do. Everyone endures all of the commercials for just one thing, the big reveal and the reaction. Well, here's the reveal. The whole city of Nineveh repents. The whole city down to the very last person. And now we have the reaction. And do you know what it is? The big reveal is that when Nineveh repents, Jonah is so angry he wishes he were dead. Now, slow down with me just for a second and look at that. Jonah just helped convert 120,000 people to repentance in really kind of like a single day with a single sentence. But he doesn't rejoice at this massive revival. Instead, he becomes inflamed with wrath. Jonah says, God, I knew this was going to happen. I knew you were gracious and compassionate. In effect, he's saying, I knew you would pull your punches, God. 
That's just like you. You always go soft on your enemies. And here's what that reveals. Jonah never wanted Nineveh to change. Why? Because Jonah is self-righteous. Well, we say, I mean, does it matter? I mean, look at all the conversions that Jonah has to his credit. So he's a bit prickly about people who come from a different culture than him. I mean, Jonah obeyed, didn't he? Isn't that the important thing? He told the sailors about God. He told Nineveh the message. Well, yes, sort of. I mean, look, look back at chapter one with me for a second. What is it that Jonah tells the sailors? That God is the God of the land and the sea. Does he say anything else? No, that's it. He only says that God is almighty. You can't escape him. Right? And then in Nineveh, in chapter three, what does Jonah say about God there? That God is wrathful and just. God's seen your evil. You better stop what you're doing. That's all that Jonah tells them in either case. That God is just, that God is almighty. Now we could say, well, cut the guy a poor break because he, he didn't know better, right? Maybe, maybe that's the only message he knew or understood. After all, this is the Old Testament. This is, this is not the whole story, right? Yeah, maybe. Except in chapter 4, he himself admits that he already knew. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God. I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew that you would relent from calamity, given the chance. Do you remember what the king of Nineveh said? Who knows, right? Who knows? Maybe God relents. Maybe God is gracious. Who knows? Everyone in the city is shrugging their shoulders all at the same time. Who knows? Maybe God has mercy. We don't know. Who knows? Let's repent and we'll find out. Who knows? You know who knew? Jonah. Jonah knew the whole time and he said nothing. In fact, if you look closely at 3 verse 4, when it says Jonah began, it's a word that describes dipping your toe into something uncomfortable. And he never really gets much further than that. Does Jonah obey the Lord? I mean, yes, sort of. He gives the message, technically, but just barely. Why? Why would he keep the best parts to himself? Because he does not want them to change. Because he does not want them to know the full truth about God. He's hoping they will ignore it. He has the message. Jonah himself knows what it means. Remember he sung it in chapter 2? Oh yeah, he sung it heartily in the fish's belly. You remember that praise song? I love God. I am so thankful to God. I am blessed. I am happy. I was lost. But God, you helped me. Starts to sell a little self-congratulatory, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. You answered my prayer. But those people who cling to idols, those foolish other people, well, they haven't got a chance. But me, I will sacrifice to you. I will do what I have promised to do for you. Now I know the right thing to do. I will never make any mistakes ever again. Jonah knows God's mercy in his own life, albeit in a rather self-absorbed way. 
when it comes time to share it in abundance with these pagans, Jonah mumbles the bare minimum. Jonah wondered at the mercy of God extended to him, but, but he cannot live with himself in seeing that mercy extended to his enemies. And when God turns from his wrath on Nineveh, Jonah decides that now he's going to pick it up for God. If God's not going to have standards, then Jonah will. If God's not going to visit wrath and justice on the people we should all hate, then he will. And so then this, friends, is why the book of Jonah cannot end with chapter 3. It can't end with a success story about a great big revival because the story is about being a bridge that extends mercy and you cannot reach out in mercy to people whom you think should not receive it because you can serve your neighbors and still hate them. And this is what it means for us. If we are going to be a bridge, we cannot end the story with Jonah 3 either. If we are going to be a bridge to the world, to our neighbors in this new divisive world, fractured and torn as it is, God is going to have to deal with our self-righteousness too. Back in August, there was a profile piece of a potential senator in Ohio. His name is J.D. Vance. He came to the public stage back in 2016 uh, because he wrote a very famous best-selling book called Hillbilly Elegy. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It's a very important book. I read it. It helped me tremendously. It came out during the 2016 election. And right at the moment when the United States is having this kind of meltdown, when people are grasping to understand the election results that don't make any sense, Vance brings this book to the table, to the public square for us. And, and Vance starts to become something of a bridge. Right? Because you see, Vance grew up in Appalachia. He grew up among working class white folk and around that opioid epidemic. He is also a veteran. Right? And, get this, he's also an elite lawyer who was living in San Francisco working for Silicon Valley. And, Vance is a Christian and a recent convert to Catholicism, right? In so many ways, Vance represented the kind of person that we are desperate for right now, who could inhabit both rural and urban conversations, who could talk about personal responsibility to liberals and progressives and systemic injustice to conservatives in the same breath, right? Who knows what it is like to be a veteran serving your country and to be in the adult in a dysfunctional childhood home who put himself through college and who lived and hobnobbed among the urban elite in San Francisco. This week I read a reflection about Vance by David French, another conservative writer. Turns out Vance is running for office. And David was reflecting in this piece on how as Vance's campaign has gone on, it has started to become more and more malicious. A recent profile on Vance ends with these ominous words, referring to Vance's desire to build a, a conservative coalition that can take on the elites. Vance says, and I quote, I think our people hate the right people. And, and, and David French, 
who has a way of just getting right to the heart of the matter, says this. The real crisis in American Christian political engagement is a crisis of the heart. Our orthodoxy is undermined by our actions, and our actions spring forth from the deepest parts of our being. At a time of rising antipathy, Christians should blaze forth with a radiant countercultural embrace of kindness and grace. Instead, all too many of us have forgotten a fundamental truth. There are no right people to hate. And maybe it was a slip of the tongue for Mr. Vance, right? And maybe we want to be generous to him because, well, we have a lot in common with him. But so it is. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the, mar- ma- out of the, overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And the thing that scares me about that is that if that can happen to an everyman like Vance, what about us? If that can happen to a man who has spent so much of his life living in such different kinds of communities, who are we willing to exclude? To tolerate to hate. Some weeks ago, I mentioned a story about Lauren Winner, who's one of my favorite writers and so adept at pointing to her own self-righteousness, right? She, uh, just to jog your memory, she was a nominal Protestant and Jewish woman who became an Orthodox Jew and then became an Anglican Christian. And that all happened for her at Oxford, And for two years after becoming a Christian, she learned and she served in a church in Oxford, but she really didn't like most of the people at Clare College Chapel. She loved her priest. Joe was her name. And a few select others, Becky, her godmother, and Anna, the priest in training. And there were these two 18-year-old girls with lively minds and brassy giggles. She says, her kind of people, right? But... Other than those few, the people at chapel weren't people I would have chosen to socialize with. They weren't up to my standards. I didn't think them clever enough, entertaining enough, whole enough. Mostly at Clare Chapel, I met broken people, needy people, people who were in church for a reason. In fact, some of them repelled me. They were pale and pasty and watery drips of people, inarticulate and shy and nerdy and downright tedious. I had nothing to talk about with any of them. Lord knows I tried. These are not, I sniffed to Joe, people I would ever invite to a dinner party. Joe, in her wisdom, didn't point out the obvious fact that I was indeed having a dinner party with them every Sunday morning. She pretended to sympathize. She pretended to be every bit the snob that I was. She said, whole days elapsed where she had to speak hour after pastoral hour to people she did not like very much or find terribly interesting. There aren't too many people around here like you. She admitted conspiratorially, as though it were just the two of us charming and sophisticated Christians pitted against the rest of the sorry, benighted church. Then she sighed and said, But I realized a while back that if I built a church filled with my friends, it would be a rather small and homogenous church. I blinked. Dull, really, Joe said. 
So much for sympathy. Friends, self-righteousness doesn't have to show in angry outbursts. Sometimes it just shows up in the quiet way you put yourself above the people around you. And if we're going to be a bridge, God has to deal with our self-righteousness. Why? Because our neighbors can feel the difference. You can pour soup in the kitchen to your brothers and sisters and yet heap condemnation on them at the same time. You can donate to the pantry and yet thank God that you are not like those other people without your God-given financial sense. You can be part of a Bible study and ask a question that yet makes everyone else feel like even the question is more spiritual than they are. You can lend an ear to a hurting friend and yet somehow make it feel like it's their fault. You can tell someone about Jesus in a way where all they hear is that they really should already know better. You can spend all of recess with the kid who is usually alone and yet make her feel like she still is. Friends, we cannot be a bridge to others if we are above them. We can only condescend. And we know what that feels like. This is why our Reformed ancestors, why Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Bucer and and Bollinger, for all their differences and disagreements, were in absolute agreement about one thing at least, the thing that Paul says in Romans, no one is righteous. No one does the right thing. We are all lost at the bottom of the sea. We are dead. And when Paul said that, he didn't mean that we only ever do only evil all the time, all right? That's not what total depravity means. He meant that even when we do the right thing, especially when we do the right thing, we do not do it from the heart. And hearts are what God is after. And if we are all dead, it begs the question, do we really have the right to be angry? You know, it's interesting that when Jonah flips his lid about God's mercy, God asks him that question. Just the one question, maybe the most important one line in the entire book. Is it right for you to be angry? Now, now I know you're upset, Jonah, but do you have the right, Jonah? And what God means is this. Is there anything good coming from your anger, Jonah? Is it leading to any kind of good that you burn with this anger? Has any healing come from your wrath, Jonah? Has anyone been reunited because you are upset? Has anyone been restored to their community or has any community been restored to itself? It would seem that with God's question, God is after Jonah's heart. Does your anger stem from love, Jonah? Because if it does, your wrath will be expressed in an effort to do all that is humanly possible to heal and restore. Or is it about you? Because then no good will come of it. 
Jonah cannot answer God's question. He walks away. Which is okay for now only because God has. Has God's wrath brought anything good? I don't know, tell me, has God's anger brought any healing at all? There's a parable I once heard about a man who falls down into the bottom of a hole. This guy's walking down the street. He falls in the hole. The walls are so steep that he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, hey you, can you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription and throws it down the hole and moves on. And then a priest comes along and the guy shouts up, Father, Father, I'm down here. I'm in this hole. Can you help me out? The priest writes out a prayer, tears it off, throws it down the hole, moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps into the hole. And our guy says, are you crazy? Now we're both down here. And the friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. This is what God has done with his anger. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is what heals all self-righteousness, whatever face it wears. Has any good at all come from God's anger? Has anyone been reunited because God was upset about how we treat each other and his world? I don't know. Only us. Only this family of of misfits. Only this community of people left out in the cold except that God extended the good news of Jesus to each and every one of us. Like he did around that first table. That table where on the night before Jesus was condemned by us, Jesus gathered his misfits around a table. That table where Peter, the denier, sat, who who boasted all day about his courage and then ran away in the dark. That table where sat Judas, the betrayer, seething with rage over Jesus' moderate politics. That table full of disciples who mostly didn't get it, who forgot all the important stuff until Jesus came back from the dead and reminded them, and they said, Oh, yeah! That table where sat people, each and every one of them, like us. People who really have no claim and nothing to do and nowhere to sit and nowhere to go until Jesus says, come and follow me. Come and lose your life and you'll find it. Come, for everything is ready. Jesus drank the wrath of God so that it could come to each and every one of us and taste like wine Jesus was broken and torn and wounded for us so that in him we could finally start to be put back together again. Has anything good come from God's anger and from God's wrath and from God's excluding of his own son? There's really only one way to be sure. Take. Eat. Drink. Remember, believe that we were lost and Jesus picked us anyway. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dear God, you love us and you always keep your promises. Those promises are spoken to us in the Bible. We trust, O oh God, that you have come to us by your Spirit, the way that mom or dad reads us a story to tell us the story of Jonah and to help us to know what it means. Would you please stay with us? Would you please go with us so that as we carry this story around and as we think about it and as we talk about it with our family, that you would whisper, us, whisper to us more and more understanding about what it means. Amen. Friends, would you rise and let's sing.
continue our response to God together, not only lifting our voices, but with a tangible act of trust by offering up some of the, fi- the money that God has given to us for the work of his uh, church and for his kingdom. Uh, we cannot give by passing baskets, but there are three different ways in which we can continue to give to support the work of this church and our partners in ministry, dropping checks uh, or money off in the box out front, donating online, or dropping your checks off during the week. Having done so, friends, uh, we open our hands to offer something to God, but it is God who comes back to us with yet something even greater and more abundance. Not just words, but a meal that he made for us, right? And so one more time, ready? When we say this, we want to know what, what is the closest way that we could get to God. And God says, you don't have to go to a special place and you don't have to do certain rituals to get yourself ready. All you have to do is lift up your heart, right? So one more time, ready? We go like this. For all that our heart is, both in joy and sorrow, in the absurdity of us growing in faith and both self-righteousness and holiness, we say, God, this, all of it to you. Please do something with it. And that's all we have to do because come, everything else is ready. When we take communion together today, we'll be doing so with little cups. Hopefully you receive those on your way in. I actually forgot to grab one. I'm wondering, Doug, would you mind helping me out. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, never mind. I didn't, someone prepared for me. Thank you. Wow, that is tremendous. Doug, now you have an extra, I guess, right? <laughs> Thank you. So when we take this little piece of bread and this little uh, chalice of juice, it's just a little bit of food. But because God is here and present, God takes this little piece of bread and this little bit of juice and he turns it into a great big meal of faith. And so, and the lid is secured. Look at that. That's good. It's pastor proof. So let's, um, let's pray together. Friends, the Lord be with you. Set your hope on God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the table of the Lord. He invites all who love him and trust in him alone for their salvation to sit with him and share this joyful feast. It is our joy to say thank you to God for this meal and for saving us today and always. We thank you, God, creator of all. You gave us life and loved us before we even knew you. We thank you, God, for your son, Jesus Christ. His death freed us from sin. His resurrection gives us new life. His return will bring us to live in God's house forever. We thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit. May the Spirit make this bread and this cup a holy meal of faith. Amen. I have a question for you guys. Go ahead. We come to this table because Jesus invited us here. To remember him, Jesus tells us to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in true faith and to keep doing this over and over again until he comes again. Go ahead. 
In this meal, God tells us that our sins have been completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus' body was broken and Jesus' blood was shed. God also tells us that the Holy Spirit makes us one with Christ and through Jesus, one with all other Christians. Let us all together, young and old, familiar and new, remember the story of how this meal began. The night before Jesus was arrested, he was eating with his disciples. Like always, he took some bread and he thanked God and he broke it. But on this last night with his friends, he added some wonderful words. This is my body, which is given for you. Eat this and remember me. And when they were finished eating, he took the cup and he said, this cup makes you sons and daughters in my blood. When you drink it, do this to remember me. And so now, following Jesus' Jesus example and his command, we take this bread and this cup, the ordinary things of the world, which Jesus made special. And so today, even when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we remember Jesus' death until he comes again. What faith do we declare at this table? Together, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Come then, people of God, to the joyful feast of our Lord. Please pray with me. Loving God, you made this world marvelous for us to enjoy. You gave us Jesus to be our Savior, Lord, and friend, and to bring us to you. You send your Spirit to make us one family in Christ. Through your goodness, we have this bread and wine to offer, which earth has given and human hands have made. May we know your presence in the sharing of this bread. And through your word, may we know the power of your salvation. We celebrate because Jesus shared his life with disciples and shared it with the church through the centuries and shares it with us now. Make us one in Christ and one with each other through this meal. Amen. Friends, come for all is ready and these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Go ahead and turn it over so that the bread is on the top. And open your lid. If you need to ask a big person to help you, you can do that. Brothers and sisters, take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of our Savior Jesus was given for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. When you're ready, go ahead and turn it over. Go ahead and open the, open the lid if you haven't already. <clears throat> you ready? Brothers and sisters, take, drink, remember, and believe that the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Amen. We should say thank you. Let's do that together. For your amazing sacrifice that has made us clean and forgiven and free, we say, thank you, Jesus. 
for this bread and wine that helps us remember your amazing love for us. We say, we thank you, Jesus, for making us part of your body, the church. We say, we thank you, Jesus, for blessing us so that we can bless others in the world. We say, we thank you, Jesus. Amen. Does anybody know what's next? Oh, yeah. One last time, ready? When God sends us out, he promises that no matter where we go this week, no matter what it looks like, he is close to us. He is so close. He is right next to our heart like the breath in our lungs. And so, friends, would you go rise, please, and receive God's parting blessing. Friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Amen. Let's go singing. Blessings and have a great week.